Okay, maybe your PowerPoint's not on there. You pray. I'll pray for Michael while Nick's doing the technical stuff. <laughs> Father, we want to thank you for Michael. We want to thank you that he's your son and um, that he loves you. And we want to thank you for the gift you've given him for uh, looking into your word and understanding it and being able to communicate it to us. And I just pray that um, you'd speak to us through him this morning. Give us open hearts and open minds to what you're saying to us this morning and bless Michael as he speaks to us. Amen. Thank you. Okay. I'll just, I'll, I'll just do it from here. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. Oh if you move it, right. Um, okay. So we've been thinking about Nehemiah over the past few weeks. Um, Nehemiah is a book that I've really begun to love as I've been thinking about it over the past a um, couple of months, really. I just wanted to give you a reminder as to where we are in the story. So, Nehemiah is there in exile, and, and the people of Israel have been in exile for quite some time. So, they have been taken into a foreign land um, where they have lived and they've settled to an extent. But for them, this whole thing of being ripped out from the promised land was a really, really important thing to them. You know, right from the story of Abraham, um, who the Israelites would have looked back to as the founding father, um, the whole idea of the promised land was really, really important to them. So the fact that they were taken away and were in someone else's land was really, really traumatic. About 80 years before Nehemiah's time, um, Zerubbabel was returning back to the promised land um, from, the, from the Persian Empire. Um, he returned back with a whole bunch of exiles. And what they did was they began to build, and then after a bit of time, completed the temple back in Jerusalem. So a great sense of, of promise and of hope, the fact that this temple had been built, the sign, the physical sign of God's presence with his people was back in the promised land. That had happened, well, it had been finished about 60 years before Nehemiah's time. In the intervening time, just to give you a bit of context, the story of Esther um, uh, happened. But about 12 years ago, from Nehemiah's time, Ezra had returned. So he had returned with some more um, of the Israelites back from exile, back into the promised land. There was a growing sense of hope. And um, Ezra brings reform, spiritual reform, to the people at that time. And so people are building houses, but importantly, the gates and the walls of Jerusalem remain ruined. They had tried building them back in the time of Zerubbabel, um, who did a good job of building the temple from Zerubbabel. Um, that's the way to remember it. Um, um, so they, they had tried, and they tried to build the walls, but failed. They had met opposition, and they had failed. And so that sense of identity and security, which was really important, was missing. 
And Nehemiah's there, as we heard from Nick a couple of weeks ago, with this really important job within the Persian Empire, um, serving, serving the, the emperor there. And, and he hears some people have come back from, from Israel, from this promised land. And, and he investigates and he asks them and he spends time with them saying, what's been happening? And he discovers that still, still, the walls and the gates are ruined. And it affects him. And he's, he's it, the Bible describes it as he's mourning and he's fasting and he's weeping for days because of that sense of the, the lost identity, the promises of God not being fulfilled, and it deeply, deeply affects him. And so then, Nehemiah is in this position where he comes before the king, the Persian king, and he has this moment the king notices his sorrow. Maybe his eyes are red from having cried and wept at these broken promises or the, the unfulfilled promises. And the king says, what's the problem? And Nehemiah, as Paul was talking about last week, offers up this arrow prayer, help God. And then comes out with this audacious request. Not only that he can go back, he can take a bit of um, unpaid leave from his job um, or sabbatical to go back there. Um, but also that the king will grant him safe passage and actually, while he's at it, that the king will give him all the wood and the beams he needs, he will need to build up the gates of Jerusalem. And the king grants his request. Immediately, Nehemiah, Nehemiah turns up um, and he starts getting um, hassle from some of the local people, Sambalat and Tobiah. Um, so he gets some of this opposition. They're greatly upset that people are coming, that they're interfering with what's happening locally. Um, and maybe it's not surprising because actually Nehemiah would have turned up. He, he wouldn't have just turned up in a, having sort of walked on a, or traveled on a camel or something like this. Nehemiah came with a whole load of cavalry from the Persians and camel loads or donkeys loads worth of huge timber beams in order to do repairs to the, to the walls. So it wasn't like Nehemiah was coming in secretly or anything like that. There was quite a big event as Nehemiah came into the city. And this is where we pick it up today. Um, and there's going to be two halves to what I wanted to share. One was about leaders, and the other one was about builders. Um, As I've been, I've been, I was thinking about this, and actually, um, through my work, sort of thinking about, I suppose, leading and things like this, um, and realised that Nehemiah is an absolutely superb example of a leader. In fact, he's probably the person at the moment, biblical character, I would most like to spend time with, and just really discover more about how he led. Of course, we can see a lot of it in the Bible, and so. This first section is about those. So the question to you, I suppose, is are you a leader? The obvious example, I suppose, for many people, uh, maybe apart from a couple like Nick, would be, oh, no, 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 I'm not a leader, because you're thinking church leader. But actually, we show leadership in loads and loads of different ways. Many of you will be leaders at work. 
You may not be responsible for millions of pounds in large teams, maybe, I'm not sure anyone is, but might be one or two. Um, but you may be responsible, you'll be responsible for some people, maybe some of you. You'll be responsible for decisions, for influencing people. Uh, maybe within your community, within a voluntary sec setting, you are a leader. Maybe you're a leader within your family. There are loads and loads of different ways in which we can be leaders, and I think we can all gain something from Nehemiah. So I wanted to read this bit, um, the end of Nehemiah 2, and as is uh, typical, if you would like a Bible, if you can wave, and somebody will be happy to give you a Bible. Brian's off, but I'm, there's a couple of people. Right, well, I'm, I'll start reading. And you can um, find your bit in the Bible and pick it up. So this is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. I went to Jerusalem, this is Nehemiah talking, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I'd not told anyone what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. I'm going to pause there for a bit, actually. And so I just wanted to bring out, I think it was about four things, um, thinking about Nehemiah's leadership. And one of the things is, um, actually, if you start reading about, I don't know, leading or mentoring or coaching, or maybe you've been mentored or coached, um, so much of what might be good practice in the secular world, in the work world, is exactly what Nehemiah exemplifies, um, but he does bring a distinctly Christian aspect to it. So one of the things is that Nehemiah um, went from vision to action. And there's this idea um, within coaching, and I think it's, quite, it's really great to sort of make these links between what we might be thinking of in workplaces and things like that and, and what the Bible says. So this, uh, there's this idea um, of uh, developing decision or decision-making and things like this um, called this GROW model. So Nehemiah had this vision. He had this heart which God had placed within him, and that was the thing which motivated and inspired and directed him. He had this specific goal that he wanted to see the walls of Jerusalem built up. He then went, and, and I suppose as, as we go through this, reflect on maybe some of the decisions which, you're, which you need to be making or some of the ways in which you need to be leading in whatever context you are at the moment. Um, so have you got that clear vision? He then went out and checked the reality. 
He went out and he was literally sort of probing and poking and just trying to discover what the reality of those walls of Jerusalem were. He didn't charge in on day one, having arrived with all these beams and um, the, the Persian cavalry and all the rest of it and say, right, I'm here, I'm here to solve it. No, he went and he understood and he understood the situation and he understood where, where everyone was. He understood that reality and the challenges of the task. Not so that the vision would be changed or anything like that, but just so he could then begin to, presumably prayerfully, explore the different options. What are the decisions that he's got to make? And he then went on to clearly decide what to do. And the thing that he wanted to do was to influence the people. So he was communicating something of the vision that God had given him and doing that. And once again, if you look within good practice and ways of communicating or leading, as I say, in whatever context, whether it's leading a couple of toddlers or whether it's leading a team of 100 people, um, there are things like this um, which, are, which are relevant, ways of influencing. And Nehemiah did exactly this sort of thing in, um, in what he was saying. He said, you see the trouble we're in, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. He was, he was showing people the reality of, of the situation and actually appealing to something of, of their hearts as well. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Notice, he came in there with the Persian king's authority to make a difference. And he didn't say, you need to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He said, we need to. That sense of actually, um, yeah, putting it in secular language, it was about the influencing people. Um, he was building that sense of community. And we will no longer be in disgrace. There was a clear outcome from what would be happening. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. So he was also communicating that sense of vision and the testimony that he had, he had had. Um, <clears throat> fairly quickly, I said when he first arrived in Jerusalem, he had opposition. He had people around him who were unhappy with what he was going to do. And that continued. Um, so when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, um, their plan to rebuild, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Um, and with, these, with different ways in which we seek to lead, where we're taking something of the vision that God has given us, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the family, whether it's in the community, however that's expressed, quite often we can come up with opposition. And the key thing about, I think, that Nehemiah shows me is that actually he wasn't defensive about it. He didn't have to defend himself. He didn't, have, he didn't feel obliged to sort of explain, oh, well, you know what? No, 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 it's all fine. Look, I've got some documents from the, the Persian, Persian king here just to explain and all this sort of stuff. He was able to speak with a sense of authority, but also recognizing entirely what was in his responsibility. 
Um, because he answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants and will start rebuilding. He was really clear. He had no responsibility as to how these people giving him opposition would react. He had no way of controlling whether they, he could be at peace with them. But what he could do is say, God is with us. We will restart building. And he also states, um, and this is the sort of thing, I'm often not very good at this, in being courageous when um, sort of standing up straightforwardly to the opposition or, or challenges. Um, and that opposition might be people, but it might be, as Naomi was saying earlier, it might be the internal stuff. It might be stress, it might be anxiety, it might be pressures of all different sorts of things. Um, and he clearly responds and says, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. It's just a statement of truth that he was reflecting back to them but was able to do it with that sense of authority because I think it had come from the vision and the heart that God had given him and it also came with the authority that he'd had actually been given to him from God via, via this king. There are many areas in which we have that responsibility and I guess that sort of authority, again, in all different aspects of leadership. Um, and finally, the thing that really inspires me about Nehemiah with his leadership. And you can read this, we've read this already um, in the past couple of weeks and we'll carry on reading it as we go through Nehemiah. Nehemiah constantly combined this sort of heavenly, or I combined heaven and earth. And there was that sense, I've got a bit of rope there, in which the two cords are intertwined. There wasn't a sense... This really inspires me. There wasn't a sense in which Nehemiah was a spiritual leader with his head in the clouds. Nehemiah was a man who was firmly rooted in the reality of where he was and what he needed to do. He was building a wall and gates and watchtowers. And that was it. In one sense, it wasn't a very spiritual job. But in another sense, it was the calling that God had given him because of that identity that you had. So how does that make sense for you? How does that land with you? The, I suppose the examples of him doing this in this particular passage is that thing of, God, of, of him saying, um, in, in his response to those, those people giving him opposition, that the God of heaven will give us success but we will start rebuilding. There's that, there's that combining the two and giving him that sense of authority. And what happened? What was the response? The response was superb because all the people that he gathered together who'd been living there for some for 12 years as they came back with Ezra, some for 60 or 80 years as they came back with Zerubbabel, they said, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So just for a moment, that was part one, just for a moment, reflect. Where do you have leadership? Or where are you a leader? Because I think all of us are, in one way, shape or form. 
probably in, in lots of different ways, lots of different examples of leadership. And I would encourage you to read through Nehemiah, be inspired by his way of being fully godly, but also fully practical in the way that he led. So, they began building the wall. Now, I find it valuable, I I don't know if you're like this, but I find it valuable to try and contextualize things. So, what did this wall look like? How big was this wall? Things like that. Well, I thought I would have a go at comparing it to Didcot. Um, Because it's just nice to give some sort of idea. This was a wall which real people like you and me built a few thousand years ago. Um, So, uh, oh, you can't read that at all, can you, that top bit? That's that's the shape of the wall that they built in Jerusalem. Had a valley down on one side um, and then was sort of enclosed, uh, enclosing the area. The larger area of that, uh, what is it, sort of tadpole shape, larger area was where the temple was. But if you compare that to the size of Digcot, very roughly, it's sort of enclosed within this triangle. If you go from Aldi, and then you go up the Broadway, all the way up to uh, Bingo, and then you turn down to the barracks, you go down to the main road there, and then back past the station to Aldi, that's about the size of Jerusalem at that time. There you go. So that's the size of the wall, which was pretty much broken down. It was broken down so badly that Nehemiah couldn't get his horse around it when he went to explore it at night. Um, but what does it mean for us, I suppose, about that? How, how can we, what, did, what sense does it make about building walls? Of course, if you start talking about building walls, um, this, do you recognize that? Trump's wall? or part of Trump's wall across um, the border between the States and Mexico, that's the sort of wall which we often start thinking about. Um, Maybe even, take a deep breath, um, some of the political walls and boundaries that we're thinking about recently with Brexit. Um, That might be the sorts of ways that we're thinking about walls. And actually, dare I say it, I don't think we talk about Brexit enough in church. I'm sure you're all tired of hearing about Brexit. But, um, and maybe I'm meaning church in the big sense, not just specifically here. Um, there's There's a lot of principles. There's lots of things to be thinking through. And actually, I was, as I was reflecting on this, I felt slightly saddened that I haven't read or heard more about the principles around about the issues of Brexit within church. Within our church, maybe. Um, But I think you would be a brave person to start (laughs) raising Brexit. Anyway, um, but within the bigger church within this country as well. Because surely God cares about the principles around this and about the way things are enacted. Anyway, I will leave that there. Um, why are boundaries important? Well, I think, particularly thinking about the boundary walls of Jerusalem, 
They were really important because of these two things, security and identity. Yes, it was. They were walls which people could come within for security. But the walls also had loads and loads of gates. It was about a dozen gates. And it also had watchtowers, 36 watchtowers, I think it was. So it's not an impenetrable fortress in that sense. But this is a place um, where when the gates were open, where people would be able to come, people would gather, people would have that sense of identity and the security within that. Later on, well, much later on in the Bible, at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation, um, there is a vision of the church. And as is classic for Revelation, there's a whole mix of metaphors going on. Um, but uh, John saw, um, in his vision, he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be with his people, sorry, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. So there was something that God seems to view as very precious about that sense of identity and that sense of security for us as a church. But that idea of the, the, the walls having those, um, having those gates, gates where the, um, the nations, the glory and honor of the nations could be brought in they weren't gates to keep people out in that sense. And they had, certainly the walls in Jerusalem had all these watchtowers, and there was that sense of connection with outside. It's not that church, our church, or the church, is, is an enclosed fortress where we can come be safe and be isolated, but no, that sense of looking out to the rest of the world. So I was, I was thinking about this a bit more as to what it really means for us for our identity um, in terms of those walls. And I picked out four bits here, um, which I was thinking about, because I think our identity is partly about worship. So in the, fact, in the way that the, the Israelites were building those walls, what walls are we trying to build? Well, the walls are our worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And it's also about care and discipleship. Love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. These are the things which I think 
is our equivalent of building the walls, to be doing these sorts of things. The prophecy that Jesus took on himself and I think and gave to the church. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Us building walls is building God's kingdom, proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, setting the oppressed free, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And then that encouragement in 1 Thessalonians, encourage one another and build one another up. So I think these are the things, this is our equivalent of building wall, is doing those things, worshipping together, caring for each other, discipling each other, reaching out, seeing God's kingdom come, people rescued, oppressed people free. And of course, this is, this is the sort of thing um, that we are doing. This is our vision as a church. So then, I just wanted to um, just touch on a couple of things in terms of who is doing the building. And this, I think, is wonderful. Because if you read um, chapter 3, I'm not going to read through it all, but I'm going to pick out a few key verses. Chapter 3 is a long list of people who did built different sections of the wall and different gates and so on. So I'm just going to scatter through with different verses. Eliashab. The high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep, sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred. Skip on a few verses. Uzziel, son of Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. Skip on a little bit more. Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Skip on a bit more. The dung gate was repaired by Milcajar, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hekarem. He rebuilt it and put its doors on their bolts, on their bolts and bars in place. Skip on a bit further. Next to him, Pedadiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophiel made repairs up to the point opposite the water gate towards the east and, project, and the projecting tower. Um, and, and so it goes on. What do we see? We see everyone was involved in building these walls. And, and this is what I think is maybe one of the things for us now. Are we all involved in building the walls. So there were people within Jerusalem at that time who had specific gifts, they had specific callings, they had specific hearts. Um, there were high priests, there were perfume makers, there were daughters, there were rulers, there were servants, there were those who were living within the bit where the walls were, and there were those who were living miles away, and they all came together to do that building. And is that what we are doing. And I was thinking on this, um, as we think about church, it's our meeting times together, but also the rest of our church life. Are we all building? Because, actually, I said everyone built. There was one group of people who didn't build. So don't be like the nobles of Tekoa who would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. 
I would say, being a noble, I don't know much about Tekoa, but presumably being a noble, they had every right to let the other people do the building on their behalf. Um, and yet, they were the only people who didn't build, and that has now been recorded for posterity. <laughs> and I bet they're kicking them, where they were kicking themselves, or would be kicking themselves if they realized that. Millennia later, we are still talking about the nobles of Tekoa who weren't prepared to be humble and weren't prepared to work under their supervisors. And I just wonder, I think sometimes for me, maybe there are certain things about church life. I think, oh, that's, that's someone else's responsibility. Or maybe aspects of reaching out, or there might be other things, aspects of worship. Oh, no, I, I haven't really got the courage. Uh, actually, it's not really my gifting. Actually, I think this passage challenges us, all of us, for all of us to build. There was one other bit um, one person who the Bible describes as they built zealously, which I would quite like to be remembered for building zealously. And it was a chap called Barak. And Barak means blessed. So don't be like the nobles of Tekoa, but be like blessed who built zealously. Um, so just in conclusion, if you lead... As you lead, look to Noah, uh, ne not Noah, Nehemiah. Look to Nehemiah for your example. Dig into the way that Nehemiah worked. And why not read Nehemiah with those eyes saying, what can I learn about my work? What can I learn about my engagement within the community? What can I learn from Nehemiah about the way that I act? And let's build as a church with worship, care, and bringing God's kingdom, building together. Don't be like the nobles of Tekoa, but be like the person called blessed. Shall I pray? Lord, many of us are leaders and decision makers and influences in work, in church, in family, in community, in big ways and in small Please help us to be good stewards of the responsibility we have. Help us to be rooted in you. Help us to see reality, but how it relates to your will. And give us wisdom in making decisions and influencing others. Let our greatest passion be compassion. Our greatest strength, love. And our greatest victory, the reward of peace. And Lord, thank you for the identity and calling of your church whom you pictured as a bride and as a glorious city. Thank you for our identity as a community of worship, of care and discipleship, and of seeing your kingdom come. In church, you've called us to be builders. We have specific gifts, but you've also called us to serve together on our mission of worship, of building each other up and of building your kingdom. Give each of us humility, I pray, and strength to build together. May we not be like the, builders to, uh, the nobles of Tekoa, but help us to build zealously like the person called blessed. Amen.